Freddy's home. You want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. He wears a dirty brown hat. He's horribly burned. He has razors on his right hand. The bastard son of a hundred meters. They burned him to death in his boiler room. And they hid the remains. But he can't get you now. He's dead, honey, because mommy killed him. When I was alive, I might have been a little naughty. But after they killed me, I became something much, much worse. This is now playing's A Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective series. Welcome to Freddy 101. Hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Brock. Twisted, lonely souls. The worst of the criminally insane. We got special work to do here, you and me. We will be reviewing all Freddy's films from Wes Craven's original through 2010's hotly anticipated remake. Who is that? But beware. These discussions will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. You can find new episodes of this series released every week at nowplayingpodcast.com. somewhere. Let's see what really scares you. Today we're talking about Freddy vs. Jason, starring Monica Kina, Kelly Rowland, Jason Ritter, Christopher Marquette, and Robert Englund, directed by Roddy Yu. This is Barack, co-host of Now Playing. This is Stuart, and I feel like I'm in that time loop that Dan and Alice <laughs> were in in part four. Like, haven't we been here before? <laughs> and this is Arnie, and this motherfucker Stuart just took my line. No. Oh, no. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no editing will save that. <laughs> well, this is interesting, folks. This is the first time we have reviewed a movie a second time here at Now Playing, but this is for a good cause, because last time... We were coming at it from the angle of Jason Voorhees-centric, and now we're going to go from more into the Freddy Krueger angle of this movie. Although we did touch on it a little bit last time, I think the focus here will be more on how this movie is in league with the rest of the Nightmare series. Yeah, last time, Brock, you were kind of the newbie, and we had to basically tell you who Freddy was, and now, well, you're up to speed. You've seen all of them as much as we have. So, well, not as not as much as you have. You guys have seen these multiple times, and with no, okay. things. But I, I <laughs> when you but, say you guys, you mean you, Arnie. Yeah, <laughs> you've seen them all multiple times now as well, Stuart. That is true. So yeah. Brock is still the least broken in of all of us. But what's interesting okay. about this, and with the experiment of seeing this a second time to review it from a different angle, is Stuart, you're kind of onto something. Is that this time I kind of got more of the, the nightmare stuff going on which made it more enjoyable for me on that angle. Because the last time, I was so enamored by this character named Freddy. And, you know, after I watched the movie again, I looked over my notes from the last time. I listened to the last podcast myself. And it's amazing how my perspective is strangely similar. 
but strangely different at the same time. It's going to be an interesting conversation. I also took my notes for this podcast and then went back and listened to the show. And I got to say, you know, in listening to the last podcast we did, and I recommend that our listeners go back and listen to it because we're going to try not to harp on the same things. But when I listened to it, I got to say, you know, I was right. I completely agree with me. I was spot on with everything I said. <laughs> it's amazing how I had the exact same opinion on the same things. I'm like, oh, that's really funny. And like, oh, that was really funny last time, too. <laughs> Still works. <laughs> you know what? I, I there there was a major disagreement with myself. I gotta say, uh, last time I was bitching about the kids and how horrible they were. And honestly, I think I was just tired of watching teenagers slaughtered. Maybe it was the fact that we were up to what was it, eleven at that point. And uh, I don't know, a couple extra slasher movies, and I just was done with it. It's very clear this time that the cast is easily the best cast that's ever been in either a Friday the 13th or a Nightmare on Elm Street. So mea culpa to Ronnie Yu and the casting director of this movie. They actually did a very nice job. I completely agree with you. I had the exact same note. I was a little harsh on the acting last time, although I believe I did say I felt something for some of the characters. Overall, I felt the acting was quite good in this, comparatively speaking, of course, you know, where all these people yes. are not going to be up for Oscars and Golden Globes, but they certainly got the job done, and I was, I was surprised, again, though, how they captured me again, but in a little bit different way because of my experience with the Nightmare series this time through. And I liked these kids last time, and so I just now think that, you know, we give it a year, and you guys will agree with all my opinions. <laughs> when you're from yeah. now, Stuart, you'll think Aviator's a piece of shit, and Brock, you're going to be thinking Friday the 13th Part 8 is probably worth another look. Another look in the trash bin, perhaps. <laughs> I don't Did know about that Did you like one, Friday the 13th 8, Arnie? I forget. I don't think I recommended it, but it is a guilty pleasure. Oh, as all of these movies you pick are. <laughs> I usually suggest this at the end of the show. I'm going to suggest it now up top. Please check out our Friday the 13th series, which you can find at NowPlayingPodcast.com to listen to our first review of Freddy vs. Jason and also find out if Arnie indeed recommended Friday the 13th Part 8. I, I think you did. I think you did, my friend, but I'm, I'm not going to call you out completely because I'm not 100% sure because I sure as hell don't want to watch that movie again. <laughs> no, no, So anyway, no, no. Arnie, you, you are spearheading this effort into Freddy vs. Jason from the Nightmare Angle. Why don't you start here and get us off on the right foot? How about a plot summary? Well, looking at it from the Freddy perspective, as this podcast is, last time we saw Springwood, and not Hollywood Freddy, but Springwood Freddy, was in Freddy's Dead the Final Nightmare, and Springwood had pretty much gone to pot. And per the Nightmare on Elm Street timeline I found, that was in 1999. Well... Four years have passed, and that four years has been very good for Springwood and the real estate market. It does make sense this was the real estate bubble of the USA. Springwood has completely rebuilt, repopulated with new teenagers, and the townsfolk have decided the best way to keep Freddy dead is to completely ignore his existence, thus not feeding him the energy he needs. But Freddy, he's got a plan. He's wily, that one. He has searched the bowels of hell and found Jason Voorhees, who died in... Jason goes to hell, the final Friday, and through Jason's dreams, pretending to be Jason's mother, Freddy motivates Jason to go to Springwood, Ohio, from Crystal Lake, New Jersey, and kill teens there. Of course, everybody suspects it's Freddy, as Freddy was the mass murderer of Springwood, and the fear thus allows Freddy to get slightly stronger and eventually able to kill teenagers again. However, Jason got a taste for killing kids on Elm Street, 
pissing Freddy off, leading to a grudge match between the two. The teens caught in the middle of these two raging psychopaths decide the best thing to do is to let them sort it out amongst themselves by driving Jason back to Crystal Lake to give him the home field advantage and pulling Freddy into the real world just like Nancy did in part one and Lisa Zane did in part six and allowing the two to go mono a zombie to find out who is the slasher to take all slashers. And thus we have the amalgam of the Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th franchises that fans had been wanting since the 80s and had been actually planned since the 90s, finally coming to fruition. But as we said before, despite Jason getting his chocolate and Freddy's peanut butter, it really kind of feels like Jason wandered onto the set of A Nightmare on Elm Street, doesn't it? It undoubtedly is and will always be a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, and Jason is the guest appearance. It is not a Friday the 13th movie. My argument for that is very simple. Freddy has got the charisma. Freddy has the personality. Jason is devoid of personality, for the most part. So how can you build a whole movie around someone who doesn't talk, who doesn't have anything really to do, who's got a a one-note M.O.? There's just no way they could have flipped that switch and made it a Jason movie. Well, let me ask you this, Stuart, because one of the repeated things you've said throughout this entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is that Freddy has no equal. And one of the things that kind of irks you about this series is the closest thing Freddy had to an equal were the Dream Warriors, and they were dispatched very quickly in the end. Mm -hmm. Here we have Jason, the ultimate Dream Warrior, really. Isn't he finally what you've been asking for, a true person as strong as Freddy to battle Freddy? Yeah, I would agree. He's Part of the reason why this movie works so well is that he is a worthy opponent. And maybe why I was bitching about the acting of the kids last time wasn't really the actor's fault, but the fact that in the end, the humans are just less interesting here. They're not dream warriors. They get a few licks in, and there's certainly nothing heinous about them, but they're just, by comparison, not what we're here for. I want to say one thing, though. You know, I almost felt like they were merging a couple different worlds here. Having done a Halloween retrospective, the lead heroine of this movie is called Lori. That can't be a coincidence, right? Her name being Lori cannot be a mistake because they're combining these two classic horror characters. No, no. It feels like the Marvel Universe. I now feel like everyone's <laughs> playing. You know, you got a Lori fighting Jason and Freddy. And there's even little tidbits. Maybe I was overreading this. I'm willing to admit that. But people kept talking about putting things in a box. I was thinking of Hellraiser. And then Freddy doesn't have any power unless you say his name. And that made me think of Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. I, I feel like they were building a world in which so many of these could later come in that the idea was right now it's going to be Jason and Freddy, but who knows who we might pull in for a sequel. They were thinking about bringing in some other people. I know that there was serious talk with Michael Myers. Of course, rights are always an issue. Mm. There was talk of Pinhead, and they even ended up making, in comic book form, Freddy versus Jason versus Ash from The Evil Dead. They did make that? I know they talked about that, but they actually made a, a comic book? Yeah, a comic book series where, and I read it, and, you know, it wasn't very good. <laughs> I did feel like this could be fun if we just kept, you know, it's a different take. Obviously, it's not totally a Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th, 
But it is almost like this campy world where all slasher creatures are equal. And that could have been fun. I, it's too bad they never figured out a plot to bring in more. And I always tell some personal stories with these podcasts. Here's perhaps my last one is I actually got the chance to interview Robert England for a Star Wars podcast of all things. <laughs> and when I was interviewing him, I did ask about Freddy versus Jason 2. This was back in, I think it. 2006 or 2007 and that is when i found out for a fact that they were remaking friday the 13th and there was not going to be a chance to ever see robert england as freddie again and that was kind of a sad moment to be told that by freddie Mm. It's interesting you should say that because in the beginning of this movie, they had the flashback recapping who Freddy is. And we see flashbacks of Freddy in the past before he got burned and things in the other rest of the series. And obviously the years have gone by, but they didn't make any attempt, even with the CGI in this movie, to make him look younger. And that was an interesting choice. That being said, he came off much more menacing in the beginning of this movie than the stuff we've been getting in the recent Nightmare movies. This is closer to the Freddy that I was hoping we would see throughout the entire series. Absolutely. This is perfect Freddy. This is Nightmare on Elm Street 3, the second half of 3 Freddy. You know, he's going to be jovial as he kills you. But here he was menacing and dangerous and yet still had the personality but he wasn't Looney Tunes. And you mentioned the age. And remember, when we did our Freddy's Dead podcast, Stuart and I both said that he was like just reclining in the chair, sitting back and watching the deaths. Even though since over 10 years have passed between Freddy's Dead and now, here, at least he's getting into it. He's mixing it up and he's getting physical. And I know, sure, there was some stunt doubles and wire work, but some of it was him. And it, it was... Ten years later, he was far more active and far more into it than he was in Freddy's Dead. That said, he was probably just more excited to be working <laughs> around this time. Not that he doesn't work, but by the time we were doing Freddy's Dead, he'd done six of these in seven years. It Probably a little rest may have revitalized him. It was just a comeback tour. There's no doubt that you get tired of playing your, all your old stuff and you're tired of this band and you want to do your own thing. And basically, Robert England went solo and found out that eh, it's not that much fun to do that. And I think you're right. I think it was a joy for him to come back with a good one and to end on a high note. And not only that, look at this script. This is a script worthy of his time. Sometimes other series that we may or may not review in the future should think about that when they revive their characters, that a worthy script is something to come back to. It's funny you mentioned that, Brock, because this movie was written by Mark Swift, and I agree with you. Incredibly written. Just a joy of a movie in every regard. And perhaps one of the tightest scripts that we've reviewed, perhaps not quite as dense as Back to the Future, but very tight. Mark Swift went on to write Friday the 13th, 2009. You're kidding. I'm not. It's hard You're to believe kidding. it's the same guy, isn't it? Well, but, Damian uh, Shannon was on here with, with Mark Swift. Oh, so, okay, it's both of them together. Yeah, and yeah. they both went on to do Friday the 13th. Oh, that's disheartening. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to say it that way. I, <laughs> I, I really am surprised by that information. I can't believe it's the same guy. Yeah, it's hard to believe that these are the same guys writing this movie and Friday the 13th. The love for these two characters in this movie is apparent by the writers. They took care to put both of these characters in a movie that made them shine. I, I just feel that the love that was in this movie was not shown for Friday the 13th to bring that character back to light. Well, there's something that should be said here. 
Here they are trying to redo what had already been done. I would say there's very little recreating, rebooting, reimagining going on. They are archivists. They called the best stuff from all of the other films and threw it, threw it in and, and were expert at the alchemy of combining them. With the Friday the 13th reboot, they were given the challenge of making it contemporary and giving us something new. And, and that's probably where it failed as a writing experiment, was that it was the same old stupid slasher movie. We'd always gotten with inconsistent ideas. Well, I'm not going to review Friday the 13th anymore, but basically, they're clearly in love with what has been done before with this movie. And they picked all the good stuff. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get into it and talk a lot about it. But they hit so many echoes of what has been done before and in just the right moment. Oh, I agree completely when you said it's like getting the band back together. This is, in many ways, Freddy's greatest hits. It's like the ultimate fanboy wet dream because it's, wouldn't it be cool if this thing Freddy did in this previous movie he did to Jason? Well, he does. There was... A lot of things in these latter Nightmare on Elm Street movies, even the ones I all recommended, there were a lot of things that just weren't as good as others. And here, it's like the high point. I think when we talked about this the last time, we said with Nightmare on Elm Street, see one to see the origin, see three, and you then see this one to get up to speed on Freddy. And that's because this one is like Freddy's greatest hits from all the rest. You can, sure, you can buy every ABBA album there is out there, but if you have ABBA gold, why do you need to? There is Abamore gold. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Arnie, you're a Freddy fan. And we talked about last movie about the makeup being changed for the demon version of Freddy. They changed the makeup here again, including the teeth. I kind of like this version of Freddy. I don't have a problem with it. But then again, I don't have that connection, as I mentioned earlier in other podcasts, to the character growing up and all that kind of stuff. What did you think about the makeup of Freddy in this movie? You know, it was different, but, you know, when it first opens, the movie starts and Freddy's retelling his history, and it starts with a lot of extreme close-ups. You don't get a good look at Freddy. You see these sharp teeth that are filed almost into fangs, and you see these eyes that are extraordinarily bloodshot, and you're just like, well, goddamn, even makeup's gotten better in 10 years. It's not just computers. And while he is different, there is a level of detail there that wasn't before. The makeup itself is again very reminiscent of classic Freddy versus, say, Freddy from Part 2, Part 5, or Part 7. Here, when you see Freddy, it, it's still, you know, Pizza Face Freddy from Parts 1, 3, and 4, and Freddy's Nightmares, you know? They just added a level of refinement, and every makeup artist does that. But I like it because it adds more of a grotesque feeling, but yet it's also still very familiar without going, as Stuart had said in Part 5, curmudgeonly. I think there's one scene here. I want to call it out. I want to draw attention to it. There's one scene where I thought it was Taff Calf. And it wasn't Freddy. And that was the scene where Lori is, I guess, dreaming and, and watching Jason's history. And she's back at Camp Crystal Lake. And Freddy comes out of the water, hovering above the dock, ninja style, and comes down and drags him down. Do you remember this? It really looked like that demon from New Nightmare. You answered my question before I asked it, because I was going to ask you guys if you thought that's who it was, was the Freddy from Part 7. This movie took 10 years to get developed, and during that time, a lot of scripts leaked to the internet, and I read all of them. And one of the key components of all these scripts is that they kept trying to incorporate Part 7 Freddy. 
And in one version I read, it was part seven Freddy, who was the real demon, manipulating Jason and movie Freddy to do evil deeds. And in another situation, it was satan himself who were using jason and freddy as pawns none of these scripts worked but they all kept trying to shoehorn in Wes craven's new nightmare and so when freddy gets really pissed off in this movie he becomes this demonic freddy and is that the evil formerly known as freddy kef kef I don't know. The makeup was so similar to the last Freddy, but reminiscent so much of all the other Freddies. I just thought they just kept the sort of makeup, but they kept the personality of part three Freddy, etc. as we talked about. I didn't see the demon version of Freddy there because the glove was still there. No, I, I don't think the basic Freddy makeup here looked at all like New Nightmare because New Nightmare was streaky and it I, I just know it very well. And this was far more like old Freddy makeup. But during that, there's a couple of times there's also... When Freddy's really pissed off at Jason and screaming, she's mine, his makeup changes. So they do intentionally make him more demonic the more pissed he is, with the ultimate being when he's that mad at Laurie on the dock. So he's like the Hulk. Yeah, kind of. He is. And so, yeah. Is it a callback to part seven? I don't know, but I would think that behind the scenes it was just because all the previous scripts tried to also somehow shoe in Wes Craven's new nightmare, whereas all his fans are just happy to forget it. I agree. I think it was as much as a nod to that movie as you needed. For those that remembered and liked it, they can point to those moments and go, look at that. And for everyone else who ignored it or didn't see it, we don't even notice. I didn't notice it the first time around. And now having just come off of New Nightmare, it's apparent that it was some kind of homage. Let's talk about the first opening here, because you get to see Robert Englund outside of the makeup as Freddy, as Freddy is recalling his exploits and you see him, you know, there's this little girl and he's making the glove and then he's taking a picture of the little girl and putting it in his little scrapbook. And you know what? This was perhaps the single best Freddy backstory we've ever been given. And we got to see this in too much detail in part six. We got to see him burned alive. And I thought this was the best showing of the evil of human Freddy that we've ever gotten in eight films. It's not much, Arnie. I mean, it should be said you're talking about to the camera exposition and maybe a couple more minutes of film on it. But it's not like there's a ton of it. I would still hope and prefer that the reboot is actually going to spend some time, meaning 10 minutes on Freddy in the 60s or 70s or however, wherever they said it, where he's a human being. I don't need the lovely bones. I don't need to see his whole seduction routine of a little girl. I really don't need lovely bones the more I no, think about don't. it. Oh. <laughs> no, we but don't. But <laughs> I do feel like we've earned enough interest in this character to know who he really was. And since I'm hoping they're not playing Freddy as someone you like, we can afford the time to spend watching his heinous mortal crimes. What would be good about that is if one of the teenager protagonists from the movie was a little kid from the beginning, so it would at least tie together. Yeah, maybe the one that gets away or saved or something. Yeah, that would be great. Here it's a shock because he, we actually do see him on camera with the little girl, but it's so quick. It's just enough to startle you, but it's not enough to make you dislike Freddy. And I guess for the tone of this movie, that's all we really need. It was very little, but this is only, like you say, a couple minutes, but it was the perfect way to do it is what I'm saying. I didn't need 15 minutes of seeing Freddy in grade school and seeing Freddy as a teenager. This was all I need of backstory for Freddy, and it's the most perfect telling of it, I thought. Sure. So you're saying you don't want the Rob Zombie version of Freddy Krueger? 
ha if it's done right i'll take it but this is the <laughs> best that we've gotten is what I'm saying. It shows him evil. He's sitting there and he's licking the photo and he's smoking a cigarette. It's more evil human Freddy than we've ever gotten. Because before when we saw human Freddy, first of all, we never saw him with a kid ever. Second, what we saw of him was him like beating up Alice Cooper. We haven't got much. And out of the small little bits they've given us, this is the tastiest morsel. I do like the way that you sidestep the question about Rob Zombie's directorial take. And I'm not sure that I would disagree <laughs> that that would be a bad thing to see in this context. I don't want a Rob Zombie, let's watch Freddie burn in real time kind of movie. <laughs> but but I, I'm going to stick to my guns here. I think eventually it would be nice to get a little bit more M.O., but for what we've been given and the fact that we have got to get to Jason and give equal time, it is all that we need. I think they give the first three minutes to Freddy and the second three minutes to Jason and then credits are rolling and here we go. And then we're introduced to our kids. And the one thing I noticed when I was taking my notes is compared to these Nightmare on Elm Street films, this is one hell of a large cast. we got Lori, the main girl. We've got Lori's boyfriend, Will. Then you've got Blake and Trey and Kia and Gib and Stubbs and Mark and Linderman and Freeberg. And I'm like, what the fuck? But then I realized, duh, the Friday the 13th movies just kept building the body count. We needed a lot of people to kill. That was something I definitely noticed. And this, it came home in this particular version is – in general, the body count is always higher in Friday the 13th. If you're a gore hound, you're going to like Friday the 13th. You're going to like Jason because he wants to drop bodies a lot. And and Freddy, I don't think we've ever had more than, what, five or six? I actually have a count. Part two had seven, and parts three and four had six. So there you go. That was something that I differentiated this time around. And you're right. We have a lot of people. The way they cleverly did it, and I think they're right on the money here, is that they built them around types. All of these people are based on pop culture. You know, we have Lori Halloween. We have the guy who's clearly from Jay and Silent Bob. We have the guy that's clearly the nerd from American Pie. They built characters that are very close to people that were in the pop consciousness and i think that's a great way of having us care about somebody and not having a lot of time to establish them a couple of things you mentioned the amalgam of all these horror movies the guy who played freeberg actually was one of the party goers from halloween resurrection thus being the only actor to be in both series well look at him he's probably ready for a, a hellraiser directed dvd movie now <laughs> you also talk about how jason has the body count in this movie that's certainly true as freddy only gets one lowly kill in on a movie that has a body count in the 20s i believe well, yeah. freddy says he gets blood i get the glory is that what it is or guts or something like that yeah and he's not wrong it, jason really does get to be the one to claim the most lives if that's what you're here for, undoubtedly Jason wins the battle. While Freddy only gets one kill, what I like about this movie a lot is it goes back to some of the pacing of part one where Freddy's not going to kill you in your first nightmare. These kids have nightmares that Freddy is taunting them, but Freddy isn't strong enough to kill them. He's getting there. He's, you know, in training, I guess. Fear training. And so... 
we get a lot of callbacks to old Nightmare on Elm Street films without the kills, which I think works well. It adds to the suspense because, again, with this big of a cast and the way we've come to think Freddy kills everyone the first time, you really don't know when the kids go into a nightmare if they're going to make it or not. You know what impressed me the most? They remembered the sheep. Remember that damn sheep we were cursing <laughs> in the first one? Like, what's with the sheep? They brought it back. They don't know either, but damn it, we'll throw it in. <laughs> That's how well of archivists they are. They they really do bring back so much, and it's and uh, just the right moment, and it feels so good. Yeah, and that was in Blake's dream, and I thought that was all like Tina's dream from the first. You had like the livestock, and then you had Freddy blocking the road, and Mm -hmm. he didn't do the long arms; he did a long shadow thing. But yeah, which was awesome. It felt so much like Tina's dream. Yep. And this time through watching this movie, having watched the Nightmare on Elm Street series, I really had a a chance to enjoy these dreams. The first time he reviewed this movie, I was complaining about I really couldn't tell when someone was sleeping, when someone was awake, when they went into dreamland and things like that. Having been worn down by all these movies, (laughs) this time I got the hint much quicker that she fell or he fell into a dream state. And that was more fun for me this time. I was actually playing along more instead of being a little more confused, especially, for example, with Laurie's dream in the police station and this scene with Blake we're talking about now. Yeah, Laurie's in the police station was another great one. It was quite a bit of exposition there, and it's showing us that Laurie lives in Freddy's old house, and Freddy even gets a line in this time, I've always had a thing for the bitches who live in this house. I don't know if that includes his wife or if they're conveniently ignoring that. I know that last time we all kind of carved on the fact that it never really makes much sense that Freddy targets her, an adult at that. Did it play any better this time for you guys? No, No. not at all. In fact, when I was going through and watching, one of the big things I put in my notes here was, God, that whole father is evil plot is completely unnecessary and doesn't work. And then I went back and listened to our last podcast and shit, that's exactly what I said again. Hey, pat myself on the back there. It doesn't really pay off. It doesn't make any sense. And it really is confusing for no sake at all. The problem with the father plot is we already have two extraordinarily high-profile villains here. And so trying to portray that there's another killer in the town just is is lame because he's not going to live up. (laughs) At no point do we think this father is going to be an antagonist because we've got two super antagonists. By the same token, though, one of the things we've talked a lot about, I know, Stuart, you've talked a lot about in this series, is the evil of the parents and the parents drugging the children and all of that. And that's something that's taken here to an almost... Freddy's dead the final nightmare extreme in that it's a whole town cover-up and the father is involved in that and that is very in keeping with the Nightmare on Elm Street series and that part plays the whole we're drugging our kids with hypnosil that plays very well into the movies we've been watching this series but the father killing the mother it sticks in my craw every time I'm going to say this about it I don't think that it was written well I don't think that it plays out well but the one thing that it does that I like is is it finally exonerates the parents, which is what I've been saying all along, is that they always want to portray their actions as nefarious. And what these kids really find out is like, oh, they're trying to drug us, and they're trying to make us not think of Freddy. And then Mark suddenly realizes in a van, oh, wait a minute, they had a point. If we mention Freddy, he comes back. And, you know, the girl finds out that her father
father was trying to stop Freddie. He wasn't the perpetrator of the crime. And I think, if nothing else, it made me feel good for the kids to finally realize that, hey, you know what? This massive delusion you want to call awful, it's actually parents that have gone overprotective but are doing the right thing to protect you. I mean, I thought that part was good. I liked seeing that. All that's true, Stuart, but I still think it's funny that a parent says, oh, I care about you so much, and then says, drink your juice, because I care about you so much, I'm going to drug you. It, it's <laughs> kind of a mixed message. What if Freddie ever changed his M.O.? I mean, I would be like, I'd be drinking it too. I would put it in the water, like fluorine. <laughs> I would be like, everyone needs to drink this, <laughs> because we don't know when and if he'll come back. I think it was silly for them to stop at doing it to the children. It's pretty much established Freddie only goes after teens. Why doesn't he kill adults in their dream? I don't know, but he does. He attacks women, apparently, that live in the Elm Street house. It's very inconsistent. It is. And he also goes into Jason's dream. And Jason is not teenaged. No, but he is. No, that's true. You know, they do. They do play with the imagery of him being a small boy that has grown monstrous and that he can revert. I, it's amazing to me. God damn, if they didn't do a callback to Friday the 13th Part 8 and had Jason turn into a boy when he's doused in water. Why would you make us think of that scene again? <laughs> but, he, but here it is. Mama, don't let me drown. <laughs> These parents know about Freddy, but their fear isn't enough to feed Freddy. Freddy needs the youngins. And so how he killed Lori's mom, how he, you know, it honestly should have been left on the cutting room floor. They should have found a way to remove it and just leave it where the father's involved in this plot and nothing about the death of Lori's mom. Well, if they did that, would you have been okay with the fact that Will wouldn't have been incarcerated against his will? Well, he could, he could have still been incarcerated because, like, his friend. And how did his best friend know about Freddy? Because of his brother, Danny Bonaducci lookalike. His brother came back from the dead and told him that Freddy Krueger killed me. That's not very clear either. I got the impression that there were so many kids up there that Freddy kept trying to pop up in their dreams. And the moment that a kid showed any sign of Freddy knowledge, they were, as they put it in the movie, quarantined at Weston Hills. And there so... This kid, you know, his older brother was killed by Freddy. This kid knew about Freddy. Freddy may have been coming for him, one, two, and so they quarantined him. The problem with the plot. No, Brock is absolutely right here, Arnie. You can try to explain it, but it is a weakness in the writing. And I'm not blaming these guys. I mean, they had a lot to try and merge here. I'm truly impressed they got in as much as they did. That is true. And to be honest, I'm trying to explain it away because, quite honestly, in all my viewings of this movie, I never caught that inconsistency and it's because i think this kid is our point of view he knows about freddy coming in and right there you go so then we get to the first freddy attempted kill after he gets strong enough and he's trying to kill gib at the party gib's real drunk she's seeing her broken up boyfriend at the rave yes yeah and by the way gib if you want to keep merging all these horror movies that actress is known for the werewolf movies ginger snaps oof known she's known for that or you found that out on imdb because i never heard of ginger snaps no she is known for that and that is among horror circles ginger snaps is a very popular series of films about teenage female werewolves it I is the best female teenage werewolf movie ever <laughs> very specific <laughs> of you Stuart. it's at least the best one since howling to your sister is a werewolf <laughs> It's kind of like Heather Langenkamp. Heather Langenkamp isn't known outside of Freddy circles either. So 
Yeah, I'm I'm convinced that Heather is much like Freddie. If we just stop talking about her, she she doesn't have any power. <laughs> she's, she doesn't exist. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I again liked Gibbs' dream because it was a callback to me from part one. Again, another greatest hits because she's following the corpse like Nancy followed the corpse of Tina. Yeah, and we finally get back Not into only- the boiler room. Exactly. And and the first time I watched this, I didn't understand what the boiler room was or the symbolism of that. This time, seeing her in that boiler room, I was a happy duck. The whole scene is well done. It's a classic because the way Freddy does not kill her is still awesome this time through. And I love that Freddy gets, you know, juiced in the face. It's just, you know, you very rarely get to see Freddy so tweaked. Although Freddy screaming, she's mine, she's mine. Yeah, the plot needs Freddy to get mad at Jason to make it turn that corner so it's Freddy versus Jason. But I don't know. In now eight Freddy movies, does Freddy seem that territorial about his kills ever? And even later in this movie, he's fighting Kelly Rowland and he just kind of chuckles as Kelly backs right up into Jason. Well, there's no way he can outsass the black chick. But I will say <laughs> this. Freddy has a motive to kill these kids. He is weak. He is spiritually, psychically weak. And every kill gives him the strength. He gets the children in his chest again, I assume. He gets their souls. So he's not just mad for, you know, a notch on a bedpost. This isn't a dick measuring contest here, despite what Kelly Rowland says. It really is Freddie needing these souls in order to become what he was. Good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, and you are exactly right. We talked in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1's podcast about how Freddy's sticking to the shadows and has to fake Rob's death as a suicide. And here, Freddy's on a PR campaign, and he wants Mark to be his PR agent, and he's burning Freddy's back into Mark's skin. It is a very big change of MO for Freddy. It makes sense, given what we know, that Freddy feeds off fear. But, but then again, with that's death with Mark, when he put Freddy's back in, that, in Mark's back, to me, was one of those puns that he would say... In the other movies, it made complete sense to me, now that I have experience with Freddy, that entire sequence. It's a throwback to Joey and and slicing the come and get him bitch from part three. I will say this, that scene played really weird for me. I agree. When he's fallen asleep and his friends see him in the window and the slash marks go across his face, all of that, very neat. But in the dream, there's always a physicality, even within the dreams. Even though Freddy can, in theory, do everything, he usually has a motivator for the torture that he does. Did you notice in this one, he waves his hand and the kid just catches on fire? That's a first. He's never just had pyrokinesis before. <laughs> Is, are they going to bring in Drew Barrymore to do a little fire starter now? <laughs> That's yeah, a good point. Yeah, you are dead right. <laughs> I can try to explain it away. Freddy's always had dream powers. But yes, we've never seen Freddy wave his hand and just somebody catches on fire. No, I thought that was a little bit of a cheat. But I mean, it's a fun scene. Who's, who's going to really quibble about that kind of stuff? Well, us. That's why, that's why you're here. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh, Welcome no, to now playing, bitch. Right, exactly. Who wants to sit here and nitpick these things? <laughs> anyway, back to the scene with a knife scratch in the makeup. All right. Uh, Now, the whole thing, though, that dream worked for me. It was another great dream sequence. I kind of got a call back to, of all things, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, when Mark looks in the mirror and sees Freddy's reflection. As much as they wanted to remind you of Part 2, I think they picked and choose the the moments that they wanted you to remember. And I think there are representation from every movie here, but some more than others. I mean, I think they didn't do, do too much like Part 2. 
Well, no, we never got Coach back. No. Maybe the deleted scene. So then we have the big powwow where the Scooby gang gets together. It has a lot of exposition about these. Oh, and- oh, torturous scene. It's my least favorite scene in the entire movie. I know we talked about this last podcast. Stuart complained about it then. And he was dead on then, too. But It is you know- a bad scene. I, I, I want to amend what I said, though, because I feel like I could have lived with the scene and been okay with it if the cop had gone on to do something cool. But he yeah. is literally in this movie just to say, hey, I just transferred from Crystal Lake. Let me fill you in on what I know about Jason Simbo. <laughs> I mean, did you even notice when he got killed? I, like, blinked and then I was like, wait, was that the cop falling over? Like, I mean, they he is not a character in this. And I thought, you know, they could have given him a little bit of something else. I mean, it's just so blatant that he is a a talking point in exposition that it, it seemed a little unfair if you have a cop here they should have made him do something copy because it's all he needed to do was go on the computer yeah. and figure it out so. it's truly they they went on the internet to learn about hypnosis so they could have done that about jason but then again how would they even know to look for jason they, they did need the character but they didn't need to make him such a paper thin target so just, if they went on the internet to figure out a hypnosil this time arnie is that a callback to part three when the guy goes on the computer and finds out about hypnosil on the computer absolutely absolutely oh, please. please come on, i was making fun of you when i said that are you serious are you actually gonna say it's a callback on purpose i'm not gonna say either way but here okay. we get <laughs> one of the Lines of the movie that I this the first time I saw this movie, this line stuck out to me. And to this day, I wish it went somewhere because you get the line, Freddy died by fire, Jason by water. How can we use that? And then never ever reference it again. I mean, they do burn the dock and then knock them off. It is it's it's I made metaphor out of it last time because it's you know, if you're going to kill someone with fire and water, only one's going to work, if anything. <laughs> uh, but this movie is all about finding that balance. And there was no way to truly make that work. But they do send Jason back into the water and they do burn Freddy. So eh, yeah. they did it as much as they could. She throws it out there as if it's an epiphany from God, and it doesn't pay off the way she presented the line. Here's what's funny is I'm still not sure if that line was ever really said. Did she say it, or was this she was slipping into a dream? Did she dream saying that line? Oh. But I like this dream, too, and this one, it doesn't call back to any other Nightmare on Elm Street dreams, but I liked it because, I don't know, maybe I'm fucked up, or maybe you guys can validate my subconscious here but i have dreams of my friends turning against me and betraying me and things and that's what this dream was and i think that's real nightmare shit in a nightmare on elm street nightmare versus some of the more surreal abstract imagery we get in some of these movies it is weird to me that they've never gone for some of the classic dreams like dreams about people walking around nude or or as you mentioned common people you know conspiring against you it seems to me like for all their talk about dreams they didn't really research any of the ones that people typically have i constantly have the one where it's my graduation day or final exam day and i forgot to go to class all semester and i have to take the test or fail Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I know I, I've had that dream too and I think it would be my recommendation for the filmmakers as they reboot the series and start over is to go to dreams that really do reoccur really do scare people I, I think that uh, yeah they missed the boat 
But you're right. Here they they do this one, and it feels different only because we don't feel that it's just about Freddie. That it has to do with her own psychology as well. Uh, I just um, never had those dreams, and it's I found it amazing that you uh, you both have. I never knew that was a common dream. I also have a lot of dreams that are in common with Joey's. Yeah, Billy Idol music and all. <laughs> Anyway, here we get a callback to a scene from part one and part six. Lori rips off Freddy's ear and brings it into the real world the same way. It used to be just Freddy's clothes. They're upping the game because Nancy stole the hat. Doc ripped the sweater. Now Lori's ripping off his ear. And it's again setting up our final battle, which they did in part one, part six of bringing Freddy into the real world. And yes, this is where Freddy's greatest hits sometimes get a little tiring, at least to me being the Freddy fan. It's like, oh, they're bringing him into the real world again. Huh? And still, he's not bound by the laws and physics of our real world. Like That always fails to elude them. Or it's just no fun when they're like, oh, he would just be a burned old man that you could take down with a punch. No, let's make him still do wire foo. <laughs> but this is where the movie gets good, isn't it, at this point? Because then they try to break into Weston Hills to get hypnosis. What What are they doing exactly here? Uh, emulating Terminator 2. <laughs> <laughs> they want to tamp down Freddy through prescription drugs, which only, like I said earlier, it only exonerates what the parents were trying to do all along, you little brats. If you just listen to us, <laughs> you'd have none of this problems. We burn people for you, and this is how you repay us. <laughs> now, here in the break-in scene, though, we also get more of Freddy and kind of a callback to me for part six. Freeberg's a stoner, and Freddy comes in as the caterpillar and tries to get him high. It reminded me a lot of Breckenmeyer from part six. Uh, as much as it didn't remind me of Jason Mewes. That said, I thought that inhaling the pot and bringing Freddy into possession of him was... Kind of neat. It changed the dynamic. It's hard to get these characters in the same scene together, and so it's a way of doing it. And, of course, Freddy gets his line in, let me handle him, bitch. Okay, let's talk about this bitch thing, because <laughs> to me, when Freddy says bitch in the other movies, and I apologize up front for the correlation, it's kind of like Hook saying, don't move, dirtbag. You get it once, maybe twice a film, tops. Here he uses bitch all the time. He says it like five or six times in this movie. Now, I just watched all these nightmare movies, and I don't remember him saying something, 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 bitch, as much in all the other movies. Is it just for a fanboy thing because this is the ultimate Freddy Jason movie that they drop it in there all the time? Because it got a little tired towards the end there that everything was such, such, dot, 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 bitch. You know, as often as it's used here, I think each one works exceedingly better than Bon Appetit bitch did in five. <laughs> no, no doubt, no doubt. He's had worse bitch lines, but the problem is that they became his only line of dialogue, it feels like. There's like at least three pivotal moments where I'm like, something clever would work better than you just castigating someone as a bitch. It waters it down every time he does it. I understand it's his thing, but enough is enough. To be fair to the writers, they were probably doing a lot of revisions, a lot of rewriting. They probably thought scenes were going to be cut, and I blame the editor here. Of One bitch would have had the crowd up on their feet. Three bitches has everyone groaning. Also, let's not rule out the fact that some of these may be ad-libs by Robert Englund, who did ad-lib quite a bit of dialogue in this movie. The man the torpedoes line was his, and... Not you know, Ronnie Yu doesn't speak a whole lot of English. So. Yeah. 
<laughs> I agree. He probably was not concerned about the lines of dialogue. Neither am I, for the most part. Ronnie did his job, but you're right, Brock. I was irritated, too, when he said it the third time. But I like that in this movie, Freddy's talkative without being a punster. I'll take three bitches over one bitch and one super Freddy and one soul food joke. He didn't make any soul food jokes. I'm shocked. Hmm. So then it gets down to Freddy versus Jason first in Freddy's dream realm. And here again... Stuart, you could claim that, you know, Freddy was overusing his power because he's treating Jason like a pinball. It kind of reminded me in certain ways, though, in just the over-the-topness of Carlos's death in Part 6. It did sort of have a Part 6 vibe to it. There was something Looney Tunes about it. Not that I minded it. They're so concerned about balance. They're so afraid that if we give too much time to one, we'll piss off the other. So if Freddy is going to end up at Camp Crystal Lake you know they've also got a fight in the boiler room as well. And so this one just felt like we have to have Freddy and his Malou giving some shit, and then we can flip it for the next scene. You know, but they didn't have to add the pinball effects to it. I think it was very effective throwing them around like a rag doll. The pinball effects made it go into Nightmare 6 land. I'm a little tired of the -the over-the-top, crazy, cartoonish Freddy. What I really want is the menacing character I'm getting for the most part in this movie... I, I would put it this way. It's not the Freddy that you and I like, Brock, but there are a lot of people that love part four and some people yeah. that like part six. So they threw a bone for them. I, and I hear you. And I think that's somewhat needed considering the legacy of Freddy Krueger. So if that's my biggest complaint that it, it kind of calls back to that. Fine. It's not as bad as a bed of nails and the Wicked, Wicked Witch of the West. It's just not what I wanted to see. I agree. You know what I caught? Freddy does a pelvic thrust with one of the things. And you know what we got here, I realized, is a very libidinous Freddy. He's flipping his tongue. He's doing a lot of sexual things here. Freddy. He's moving like Elvis with his pelvis. (laughs) I mean, no, I know what you're saying. Yes, he definitely is. uh, He almost even implies that he wants to do Lori. I mean, there is something, you know, he gives her the tongue. I guess he's always got to give somebody the tongue. But (laughs) it's in the contract. It's in the contract. But I feel like, yeah, I agree. They were looking for ways to make you turn against Freddy and root for Jason by the end of it because they had made the decision that the kids thought Jason was the better of two evils because at the end of the day, he's less powerful. It's always going to be one guy in a physical space moving towards you, no matter how powerful, that is less threatening than someone that comes at you at your most vulnerable and can do anything to you. But the thing that I got was we talked about in part five how we never really had a sexy Nightmare on Elm Street. He never really went with sex. Here, he is really using sex as a weapon to a degree. Like you say with the scene with Lori where the first time can get a little messy, princess, and all of that. It's really here going to a primal nightmare fear, which is sex. And yet, you're never going to sell him completely as that fear. Vampires have that quality because you can cast good-looking people in those roles. Freddy is still a charred motherfucker. (laughs) He can talk about busting her cherry with his prong and all of that, but at the end of the day, we know they're not going to do that because how unappealing would that have been to look at? But 
when he does that, Lori goes into Jason's dream and watches, and we do get to see Freddy get some action, keep in mind, because one of the teenage camp counselors ignoring Jason's drowning turns into Freddy, and Freddy's fucking a corpse. Yeah, the only thing more startling about that image is he's wearing a T-shirt, and I'm just like, ooh, <laughs> some people just don't look good in T-shirts, and Robert England is one of them. I'm like, well, please, you know, I'm not sure not what he would have in. Yeah, right. Not with the mask on. The mask and the t-shirt didn't work for me at all. And she gets in there, and then Freddy captures her and starts to torture her. She, he's cutting her slowly and doing that. It tends to get a little messy line that I just mentioned. And that is, again, not Freddy's M.O., is it? We've never seen him torture anyone with the exception of the time he kept Joey hostage. He's got a thing for the bitches that live in that house. <laughs> that is true. Then he gets pulled into the real world. Were you guys tired of this, or is it just me, the real world pulling? I think it's just you. Well, we're talking this entire podcast, this time and last time. We have mentioned over and over again that this is Freddy's greatest hits. Well, even though I'm not crazy about this as a plot point at all in this entire series, here it made sense to me they did it. Last time, not being familiar with Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm like, you can bring him in the real world. But here, (laughs) it's what we need for this plot. This story could not be satisfying for both Jason and Freddy, if he was not brought into the real world. You are exactly right. I mean, what was the other alternative that, you know, Jason's going to pull off his mask and force out, I don't believe in you. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that wasn't going to make me feel good. I mean, that would have been a callback too, but uh, uh, no, let's not do it. And I guess that I should realize, for the vast majority of people seeing this movie, they aren't living with A Nightmare on Elm Street the way that I used to. And A Nightmare on Elm Street 1 was almost 20 years old by the time this came out. So it for them, it's probably a fond yet vague memory, where for me, I'm like, again... <laughs> Yes, you've exactly got it right. And I felt that way when I saw the movie in theaters was I hadn't seen the Nightmare on Elm Street movie in over a decade. So it was like a distant, comforting, nostalgic memory. Like I said, it's not about radical rebooting here. Everything they do is a callback to something they've already done. It's archiving. It is not pioneering. But then they bring Freddy into the real world, and I called it a WWF match before. I stand by that. It it is over-the-top fun. I usually check out of movies when they go to Kung Fu. I'm not a big Kung Fu person. I can recognize that that's why some people are here. I don't need a big action scene. I, I, I think it was more satisfying to see Freddy use the machete on Jason and that Jason rips off his arm and uses the glove on Freddy. I think that was more satisfying than anything else they did to each other. Yep, I agree. I mean, I, dis- I disagree with you about the big action scene. I really enjoyed watching it. I thought they both of them got their licks in. It, pretty much, they both were smart fighters. One didn't let his guard down, so the other one got a shot in. It was a nicely choreographed fight. But I completely agree with you. The highlight of the whole thing was them using each other's weapons on each other. And I'm really glad they went there. And it's, again, a call back to parts three and six of Nightmare that Freddy gets stabbed with his own glove. One of the things I really liked about this is they didn't forget to kill some teenagers along the way. Because Linderman and Kelly Rowland both bite it in the middle of this. There is some collateral damage to their fight. And I like that. Linderman's death is very touching for these kinds of movies, don't you think? It was kind of like a very calm sort of acceptance of his death. Right around this time also in the movie, you see, it's not a tramp stamp, but it's a tattoo on the back (laughs) of... You noticed that too, huh? (laughs) 
And I have it. I don't think I brought it up last time. That character would never have a tattoo. No, not at all. She's a very virginal character and a little bit of a... uh, Either they thought they'd CGI it or the makeup just didn't cover and it got wet. But yeah, the character shouldn't have the tattoo. Agreed. Completely. But this is minor nitpicks. I mean, this is a minor nitpick for a great scene in a great movie. We get to the final scene where Jason is emerging from the lake and Freddy's there and Freddy winks. And I want to revisit a conversation we had last time. Do you guys think it was a stalemate or do you think there was a winner? I absolutely, positively, 100 believe call that a stalemate. There is no winner and they've never intended to give a winner. And Jason is not the winner in that scene in any way why would freddie wink if he didn't have a plan to come back i will stand by what i said last time as well it is a draw it is not a winner no loser and the wink to the camera is not only because of what Stuart said but it's kind of a, a, a wink to us the audience because it's letting the audience know i'll be back it's a perfect who, it's a perfect way to end the movie who would ever accept one beating the other who would accept that People are going to come there with their own fans, and they're not going to admit defeat if Jason walks away with the head or if things had flipped and and Jason ends up taking the mask as a souvenir. That would not have been acceptable. You have to appease both fans, and they did. Let me tell you, from listening to the director's commentary and things, the makers of the film felt like, you know, it was like the end of Rocky, but Jason won. That doesn't mean there wouldn't be a Rocky 2 or a rematch, but... Mark Swift intended it to be seen as Jason won, and they decided going in that it was unfair to the fans if they just made it a total draw or if they did what some of the other scripts did where, you know, they kind of have to team up against a bigger evil at the end. They decided not to do that to the fans. They saw it as Jason won. I knew going into this movie that they had said there would be a winner. I didn't know who it would be till I first saw it. But knowing that they said there's a clear winner and seeing that end, I take it as Jason won. So I stand by what I said before. Jason won, but Freddy's not dead. He, If it wasn't for the remakes, there could have been a round two. Wait a second. Wait a second. You're saying this is like Rocky. If you want to say that it's anything, you could say it's more like Rocky 2. They both fall down, but one gets up and wins the championship belt. I will concede this much, Arnie. This is what I'm going to say to this. <laughs> they have slightly skewed this movie so that Freddy is the villain and Jason is the hero. And as such, they give a happier ending that Jason appears to have the upper hand in this last shot. Literally, his hand is upper to Freddy's head. However, both of them have, quote-unquote, been defeated by the humans, and both, it's all understood, will be back. So there is no winner or loser. The winner is us, because we got this movie. And they didn't screw it up. They didn't. Unlike other versus movies we might be talking about in the future. So, Arnie, Stuart, once again, do you recommend Freddy vs. Jason? Stuart. I do. I feel strongly about much of what I said before, and I feel like the problems that are inherent with the movie are problems with the series in general, and that they did the right thing by honoring the series as it had existed rather than trying to invent a new Freddy uh, versus a new Jason. It is very much a loving tribute and a good high note to end on. Not often does that happen. Do we see the last episode with the original cast being a good one? And here I feel like Robert England can be really proud that this might be 
the second best nightmare movie there is. I think three still stands as the high watermark, but this is the second best one. And I think it's probably the best Friday the 13th movie. So, yeah, Friday fans, Jason fans, everyone's happy. Arnie. Absolutely. Again, I'm recommending it for the second time. Like Stuart said, this is a great swan song for Robert Englund. And it goes back to what I said about part four. I said I liked part four because it was slick and more of an action film than a horror film. I feel that's the case here. This is far more action than horror, but it does also bring back some good seriousness to Freddy, who in his last incarnations had just become too jokey. And really, the way Freddy and the Nightmares are handled here does make this one of the best Nightmare on Elm Street films of the entire series. A strong, strong recommend for Freddy fans. If a, there's any Freddy fan listening to this who is hesitant because they're not a fan of Jason. Just think of Jason as a dream warrior and go in and enjoy this movie. It is a little disappointing. Freddy only gets one kill, two of you count Laurie's mom, but that's a small price to pay for such an enjoyable, fun movie. And I'm going to echo what both of you already said. I also, again, recommend this movie. It was as much fun the second time as the first. Having the background now in both series, it made it more fun for me, but I still enjoy the movie as a whole, even with accentuating it with these new aspects that I'm familiar with. There's not a lot not to like here. We were nitpicking this thing because, you know, it's fun to do that. But the bottom line, end of the day, this is an entertaining, fun movie. We come to these horror series to be entertained. And this movie delivers in spades, folks. If you like Freddy movies, if you like Jason movies, this is a great movie. They did a fantastic job. They made a very few missteps in this movie. I do recommend this movie. Check it out. It's a lot of fun. And that is the Robert Englund swan song. And we have now come again to the end of our retrospective series, waiting to now look at the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. What do you think, guys? Is this going to end better than the Friday the 13th retrospective? It couldn't end worse. I truly believe they're going to go much darker with this given the tone of what horror movies have turned into the past few years. I don't think it's going to turn into Saw or that harsher kind of gritty thing. I do think they will stay in the realm of Nightmare on Elm Street, but it's going to be gorier. It's going to be much more serious. I think Freddy's going to be much more of a menacing character. Based on nothing else but the poster and who they cast as Freddy Krueger, I think the intensity is going to be there for the character of Freddy Krueger. Now, whether or not the movie's going to work at all and whether or not we're going to get the same bad teenager acting and things like that, well, we'll find that out when we see the movie. But I have high hopes for the character of Freddy is going to be much more in line with what I think the character of Freddy really could have become all those years ago. I'm going to make a bold, possibly sacrilegious prediction. This is going to be a better Freddy than Robert England. Wow. I'm very much looking forward to it, and I'm trying to keep my hype in check, but I have high hopes. That said, I had high hopes for Friday the 13th. The worst problem with, I have with the movie is Platinum Dunes' association with it. The director yeah. made really interesting videos in the 90s. The actor they've got is astounding for Freddy Krueger. The images that they're coming off the trailer look solid. There's no reason to be worried until you realize whose hands it's in. Michael Bay could rip this to shreds worse than Freddy ever could. <laughs> well, we'll find out when we reconvene, but we're not done yet quite yet here, folks. We have nope. one more piece of business to do. We have another song. Mm -hmm. I was reading Horror Hound magazine the other day, because I do that. Well, <laughs> Horror Hound kind of ripped us off a little bit. They had an article about the Elm Street group. What Elm Street group? The ones this singing the songs. 
You call this what a Elm group? Street group? That's sacrilege, uh, Stuart. What Elm Street group? But they actually did a little bit more research, so I'm stealing their research. Okay, fair enough. There are three people in the band plus Robert Englund. Okay. All right. The keyboardist, uh, the drum machine button pusher. <laughs> yeah. The singer is Stephanie Davy. Okay. Then I think we've got Kevin Kelly and Neil Posner. So one of those is that guy who was doing kind of the lower voice in the previous song. And then <laughs> probably one of them is a guitarist and the other is the synth keyboardist. So is yeah. there only one female in that listing? There is only one female. So you were correct then earlier on earlier tracks when they had the backup singers. It's all either, her. It might be all her just doing it three or four times and then mixing it together. Mm-hmm. Like Phil Collins. <laughs> like they Phil should have done Invisible Touch. All right. Shall we give this one more listen? I guess. Mm, I don't really want to. It's another Freddy original. I like the originals. Actually, no, I hated that last one. Uh-oh. <laughs> it is called Down in the Boiler Room. Down like- in the Boiler Room. Up in the streets. Freddy and the poor boys are playing. <laughs> <laughs> little CCR for you, folks. I'm excited. I, I, like the, I like it already. I like the title. At least it's Freddy-ish. Kind of a funky opening here. It's real funky. It's very Parliament. Oh, oh, Down in the boil. What is that song goes that has that beat? It goes do 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 you know what? This is working for me. The female singer and Freddie and him just doing the little speak thing. This is the best version of that, yeah. I gotta get to the chorus though. And afraid to He's waiting for you. Ooh, she can't hit that note. Yeah. I was hoping for more there, but... <laughs> monsters work for what? Monsters no, work, work for 10. For 10. No, no, grammatically for 10. Oh, I didn't write it with 10. I kind of like it. I don't know what to say. I'm a, you know, granted, we are listening to a Nightmare on Elm Street singer. <laughs> it's not a great song, but it's, you know, it's kind of funny. It's what this this whole album should have been instead of some lazy covers of oldies. I still wish they had a more clever turn of phrase. These lyrics are pretty bad. Yeah, I'm having trouble getting into the song because I don't understand why it's called Down in the Boiler Room. I mean, it's best one on the disc. I gotta say this, though. I feel like the singer is always taking hypnosis, though. <laughs> like pulling back on any real singing, I you know, granted this is probably embarrassing for her, but she could throw a little bit more into this. For lack of a better word, because Freddie kills people, she gives a little life in this, can't she? Yeah, exactly. A little, exactly. little more love and care for what you're doing. Yeah, but I agree with you. She's cutting a paycheck, I guess. Yeah, it's a it's a tough gig. No one's here to hear you even sing. They're mad you're singing. Why yeah, they want you are you singing? We're here for Robert England to sing, and that's, you know, already suspicious. 
Exactly. But you know, him singing is like putting his nails against the chalkboard, though, right? <laughs> and some of those it really was. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should be happy that he didn't take the lead on that one, Stuart. <laughs> yeah. Of the three original songs, there was the dance one. I think there's four else. originals so far. There was the Miami Vice one. Don't dream. Don't sleep. And there's this one. This one okay. with heads and the tails above all the others. So this is the prettiest turd of them all? Obsession. You forgot Obsession. No what was that? <laughs> I really did. It was only I two podcasts ago. Oh, vaguely. Yeah. Every time you say that, I think of animation. But oh well. Yeah. I hear you. I like Dancer Else better. I don't know. I, I could see this being in my rotation. Only like low rotation, but rotation on my iPod. I could actually see me playing this song again. Maybe. And I wouldn't be as embarrassed while driving in a convertible and listening to this because people wouldn't know what it is versus having Freddie scream, dance, or else. They might find it strange that you're wearing a Freddie mask and driving with your glove. You think? Depends where you're driving. I think this song is more successful at being sort of a slow burn funk than that dance or else was as a dance song because they don't have the money to make a really good dance song. Whereas, you know, funk is just one keyboard and a drum machine. I, I, I think that Dancer also is more fun to listen to. This sounds like Prince's guitarist. Yeah, like Vanity or, no, she was a drummer, right? I don't know. Well, while you're down on the boiler room, check out our website at www.nowplayingpodcast.com. <laughs> Not my strongest segue, folks. Not my strongest. <laughs> and you can also find our you can find our other retrospective series yeah. on our section. And you can find links to our forums where you can discuss this movie and many others with other listeners like yourselves. If you're enjoying this podcast, please. And how could you not be with Freddie's constant with Freddie's with Stuart's constant Freddie impersonations? <laughs> <laughs> please leave us a positive review on iTunes. And you can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Anywhere you want to find us, we'll be there. And if we're not, tell us so we can go there. Exactly, and be omnipresent. Well, Stuart Arnie, it has been an educational series thus far, and I'm honestly looking forward to seeing what they're going to do with the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. But until then, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Thank you for listening to our Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective. But there's so much more to learn. Keep coming to NowPlayingPodcast.com every week to get the latest episode. Oh, yeah. Great to be back in business. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, stop by our forums to post your thoughts on this series. You can also find us on Twitter as NowPlayingPod or our NowPlayingPodcast fan page on Facebook. Links to the forums, Facebook, and Twitter pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Next time, don't, don't stay away so long. 
A Nightmare on Elm Street is copyright and trademarked New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers Entertainment. You can do, God, what it takes. <laughs> now playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers Entertainment, or Platinum Dunes. I am eternal. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010, all rights reserved. Do you want? Do you want another intro? That's not. No, that's a good intro. I just did. Actually, it caught me actually, off guard. Could you guys hold for just a second, or you can give a plot summary, and I'm going to take the headphones off. Yeah, go ahead. Hold on. Sorry. Now we can talk shit about him. <laughs> I can't believe you're not ready with a plot summary. Should I do this shit? Come on. Well, it's not that hard. You know what? I just I need one piece of fucking information, and once I have that information, his I name will... is Jason Voorhees. Two O's. <laughs> I think it's two E's, actually. <laughs> is it really oh, two is O's? It, really? it is two E's. Yeah. E's. It's ba- bas- yeah, it's both. <laughs> okay. The extra O is for oh. Oh. <laughs> okay. Sure, you can buy every ABBA album there is out there, but if you have ABBA gold, why do you need to? There mm. is ABBA more gold. <laughs> <laughs> and Mamma Mia soundtrack, which gives you... Alternate Pierce Brosnan's of those fantastic hits. <laughs> I, yes. I think P- Pierce Brosnan is a better ABBA than the Sweets. You guys almost had me do a spit take with that one. Thank you. As <laughs> 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 Stewart said, ABBA more gold to fight because I own it. <laughs> I also surprised me, young Freddie's greatest hits too. So <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, it's <laughs> you know you got Joe who plays at the local bar and coming into town or. Peter Chris, Peter Chris, whoa, (laughs) he does have superpowers (laughs) (laughs) and coming into town are, hey guys, you got 50 seconds left. Finish it off. I'll be right back. (laughs) That's not very nice. That's just cruel. Yeah. And they kind of ripped us off. Hound or whorehound? Horror hound. Because that would be a different magazine. I think Joey had a stack of them. Yeah, whorehounds on Craigslist. (laughs) 